following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Well, um, let's spend some time listening to God's Word. Um, but before we, we open the Scriptures, let me tell you about a report that I came across a few months ago. You may have seen it. Uh, UNICEF produced this report on the state of child and young people's health and welfare in the developed world. Um, and if you, did anyone see that? It, it um, came out a little while ago, and I mean, it was a damning indictment of New Zealand, of this fair country. We are at the wrong end of all these statistics. And the statistic that particularly grabbed my attention was this one. New Zealand, Aotearoa, we still have the worst teen suicide rate in the developed world. Every week, on average, two Kiwi teenagers will take their lives. Why? I, mean, I guess there are many reasons why someone might choose to commit suicide, but one of the main reasons, according to the psychiatrist Viktor Frankl, is a loss of hope. When hope is gone, when hope has left the building, people give up. So this morning, I mean, we live by hope. It's, it's the oxygen we breathe. So this morning, I want us to spend some time, if, if we can, looking at one of the most hope-giving stories in all of Scripture. It's the book of Esther. Uh, so if you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Esther, the book of Esther. We'll look at Esther. Whoa! We'll look at Esther chapter 1. Esther chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. We're going to, we're going to experience God's Word in, in a different way today, I, I suspect. Um, this is a wonderful narrative. So let's hear the story, in part, from the inside out. Let's hear the story and encounter it as a story. Um, but first, I'll, I'd like to read to you part of it. This is a brilliant political memoir, if you've never read the book of Esther. This is, this is a political memoir set in what is modern-day Iran, around about 470 BC, around about 100 years after the people of Israel were uprooted from their land and scattered through the nations in judgment on their sin. This is where we find ourselves in this story. So let's, let's read. I'll read to you uh, just the first 12 verses of the first chapter, the opening scene. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush. In other words, from, from Asia right through to North Africa. At that time... King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, for a full six months, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. That's a long party, right? That is a big party. When those days were over, the king gave a banquet, another banquet, this one lasting seven days, in the enclosed garden of the king's palace. For all the people, from the least to the greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa, 
The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement, a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. This is one big booze up, right? Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the woman in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he's roaring drunk, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zetha, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. The commentators will tell you at this point, many of them, that Queen Vashti is wearing her royal crown and nothing else. She has been summoned wearing her royal crown in order that the people, the nobles, can see her because she is lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. And the king became furious, burned with anger. And the the narrator goes on to say that on the advice of his legal experts, on the advice of his lawyers, The king dismissed his queen, fired the queen, divorced his wife, and issued an irrevocable decree decree of the laws of the Medes and the Persians that Vashti is never to step foot in his presence again. So in this opening scene, we get a glimpse of the kind of world in which the people of Israel are living. I mean, this is a world ruled by a man, Xerxes, who possesses immense wealth, extraordinary power. From his throne in Susa, he ruled over the largest percentage of the world's population of any emperor in history. That's why they called him Sha'an Shah, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, because he ruled over the entire known world, so to speak. His word controlled everything and everyone. And for the Jews living in this world, scattered throughout the provinces of Persia, that was a troubling reality. Because this this king, this man, is clearly a self-obsessed, hot-tempered, impulsive narcissist with a swollen ego and a very short fuse. Can you imagine anyone this immature occupying the most powerful political position in the world? Surely not. But, but this king trumps the odds, apologies, and is sitting on the throne in Susa. And so the narrator of the story wants us to understand right from the beginning that this is a world in, in which no one, not even the queen, is safe. Let's continue to hear the story. Let's continue to engage with the story. 
but from the inside out. Well, when the king sobered up and his anger cooled down, he began to regret his impulsive decisions. I quite like Vashti, he said to himself, and now I don't have a queen. So his, his personal attendants, his young bodyguards, came up with a cunning plan. They said, Your Majesty, uh, why don't you appoint talent scouts to identify the most attractive young virgins or bachelorettes from every province in the empire? Round them up, bring them in to the royal harem, put them through 12 months of intensive cosmetic treatment, and then, at the end of that process, let each one of these young women spend a night with the king. And the woman who pleases you the most will become your new queen. The king was rather taken with this plan. Miss World meets the apprentice. This is the perfect reality contest. So with a click of his fingers, with a word from his mouth, the most beautiful young girls from all 127 provinces of the empire were gathered up in a net and dragged into the citadel of Susa, the harem of the king. And one of those contestants was my young orphaned cousin, Hadassah, Esther. I'd raised her as my own girl. She was my daughter. Her parents died, and, and she was growing into this beautiful young lady. So I shouldn't have been surprised when they came for her. But if I'm honest, I was devastated to think that my little Esther, my little girl, was going to be violated by an uncircumcised Gentile. For her sake, though, I said, Esther, listen, sweetheart, play the game. Do what they say. Don't resist. And whatever you do, don't tell anyone that you're a Jew. Don't let anyone know that because we have many enemies in this place. And so Esther played the game. She concealed her identity, compromised her faith, and played the game. And she played it well, because when she spent her night with the king, the king was so taken with her almond eyes and her shining black hair and her lovely lithe figure and her attentive, attractive ways, that in the morning, the king took a crown and he placed it on her head and he proclaimed her Queen Esther. My little girl, Queen Esther. And then, of course, to celebrate, the king had to throw a boozy banquet, right? The king liked banquets. So he threw a boozy banquet for all his leading officials. And one of the officials at that banquet was a man called Haman. Now, in Hebrew, Haman sounds very much like the word for wrath. It was a fitting name for this man because he was a vicious vengeful, spiteful, hateful man. He was a wrathful man and, and a descendant of Agag the Amalekite. And you remember the Amalekites, how they viciously attacked the infant nation of Israel as we made our way out of slavery in Egypt. You remember how, how God, through Moses, said that because of the way the Amalekites had treated his people, he, God, would be at war with them from generation to generation. The Amalekites were our worst and oldest enemies. And so when the king appointed Haman 
prime minister and commander that all the officials in the royal administration should honor Haman by bowing down in his presence, I refused. I refused. I was not going to bow down to that man. Now, was it pride or prejudice or principle? I don't know. But I do know now that it was stupid. Because when Haman saw that I alone, of all the palace officials, refused to bow down before him, and when he discovered that I was a Jew, he began looking for ways to eliminate not just me, but all of my people. He went to the king, and he said, uh, Your Majesty, there is a certain people group scattered through the provinces of your empire. They, they follow strange customs. They disregard the king's law. It's not in your interest to tolerate them. They should be destroyed, Your Honor. And the king in typically impulsive fashion, without even bothering to find out who these people were, takes the signet ring off his finger, the ring of power, the ring of authority, and he gives it to Haman. And he says, do with these people as you please. And so Haman does. He summons a press conference. He issues an edict. He announces a new law that on a certain day, on an appointed day, the 13th day of the 12th month, all the Jews in every province of the empire were to be killed. Men, women, children. My people, God's chosen people, were to be annihilated in one fell swoop. God's plan, his promise to redeem the world through a descendant of Abraham was going to get swept away in a holocaust. What hope did we have? What hope did we have? We were a small, defenseless minority in a pagan world controlled by hostile forces. What hope did we have? So when I read the terms of that edict, I ripped my clothes in grief. I put on sackcloth and ashes, and I staggered out into the city square, wailing bitterly. And when the queen messaged me saying, what's the matter, Mordecai? I replied by forwarding to her the terms of that decree. And I said to her, Esther, forget about concealing your identity. You need to go to the king now and plead for your people. She replied by saying, you know that for anyone to approach the king unsummoned, unannounced, the law, the sentence is death. Certain death, unless the king should show them favor by extending his golden scepter and sparing their life. But it's 30 days since the king last sent for me. He clearly doesn't regard me with the favor that he once did in the early days of our marriage. And then she said, you saw what happened to Vashti? This king is impulsive, he's unpredictable. If I go to the king without first being summoned by him, I could die. And so I texted straight back. I said, Esther, don't think that just because you're queen that you will survive this genocide. If you remain silent at this time, you and your family, we will all perish. And then I said this. But who knows, Esther? 
Maybe you have come to your royal position for just such a time as this. After a long pause, she eventually replied and said, Okay, gather together all the Jews in the citadel of Susa and fast for three days. And then, even though it's against the law, I will go to the king. And if I perish, I perish. And so, on the third day, the queen put on her loveliest royal robe, the little slinky purple number that the king quite liked. And he, she made her way into the magnificent inner court of the palace and stood there directly in front of the king's throne room and waited, trembling. And the king, when he looked up and saw the queen standing there, unsummoned, unannounced, his lips curled into a smile, and he said, Esther, as he held out his scepter, Queen Esther, come here. What is your request? Up to half my kingdom it shall be granted to you. Now you have to understand how king talk worked in those days. This was code for I'm feeling kind of generous today. I'm in a good mood. What can I do for you, sweetheart? Would you like me to make you a cup of tea? Would you like me to give you a back rub while we're watching Netflix tonight? The king was nowhere near offering Queen Esther a half his kingdom. So the queen, Esther, she had to play her cards very carefully. And so she came and stood, kneeled before the king and said, Your majesty, if it pleases the king, would you come tonight to a banquet that I have prepared for you and for Haman? And the king said, certainly, I love banquets. And so the king and Haman made their way that night to a banquet that Queen Esther provided. And at the banquet, after the third course, while the king was a little tipsy on wine, he said, now what is it, Esther? What is your request? Up to half my kingdom, it shall be granted to you. This is the moment Esther has been waiting for. And what does she say? She turns towards the king and says, Your majesty, if the king regards me with favor, and if he is willing to grant my request, then would you and Haman come tomorrow to a second banquet that I will prepare, and there I will present my petition. And so that night... The king staggers off to his bedchamber. Haman strides off in high spirits. Haman's thinking to himself, I am so honored. Who of all the empire has been invited along with the king to these two private banquets with the queen? No one but me. There is no one more honored than I. But his high spirits came crashing suddenly to the ground when he got to the king's gate and bumped into me, working late in the royal administration block, and he saw that I still refused to bow down and honor him. I could see his brow darken and his teeth clench with rage. And apparently, when, when Haman got home that night, he could endure, he could contain his rage, his wrath, no longer. And he 
gave orders for a massive stake to be built in front of his mansion, the six-story high shish kebab skewer. And he resolved that in the morning he would go to the king and ask for permission to impale me on it. But that night, the king had trouble sleeping. And as he tossed and turned, he called out to his personal attendants, "Ah, bring in for me the book of the Chronicles, the record of my reign, and read to me about me. I like to hear about myself. And so they did. They brought in a huge scroll, and they unrolled it. And, and one of the attendants started to read the paragraph that reported a particular occasion when, when one of the officials in the palace administration uncovered a plot, discovered that two of the royal guards were plotting to assassinate the king. And, and this, 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 this official was loyal to the king. He reported the plot and saved the king's life. And, and what was the, the, the official's name? Mordecai the Jew. Well, the king was still musing over this interesting event when he found himself with Haman at Esther's second banquet. And again, after the the, the third or fourth meal, while the king was drinking wine, he said, now Esther, what is it? What is it, my lovely queen? What is your request? Up to half my kingdom it shall be granted to you. Queen Esther says, Your Majesty, if I have found favor in your eyes, then would you spare my life and spare my people because we are about to be killed, destroyed, annihilated? The king exploded, What? Who would dare to do such a thing? And Queen Esther pointed one finely painted fingernail in the direction of Haman and said, Your majesty, the enemy, our adversary, is this vile Haman. And the king got up in a rage and stormed out into the palace garden. Haman, recognizing that his life now dangled by a thread, he turned to to Esther and started begging for his life. And then, in in desperation, threw himself onto the, the queen's couch at the very moment that the king should choose to re-enter the banquet hall. And the king roared, what would he even dare to molest the queen while I'm in the room? And no sooner were those words out of his lips than one of the eunuchs attending the king stepped forward and said, your majesty, it's come to our attention that a six-story high pole has been erected in front of Haman's mansion. Apparently, Haman intends it for Mordecai the official who saved your life. And the king said through gritted teeth, impale Haman on it. And so Haman ends up shish kebabbed on the skewer that he had intended for Mordecai the Jew. And with Haman now dead, the king thought, oh, that was a bit impulsive. He needed a new prime minister. So who did he appoint? The official who saved his life, Mordecai the Jew. The king took the ring that had been on Haman's finger, the ring of power, the ring of authority, and he gave it to me. 
And so now with the king's authority, it was my turn to, to, to summon a hasty press conference. And I issued, I announced a new edict giving every Jew in all the cities of the empire the right to assemble on the 13th day of the 12th month and defend themselves, killing anyone who should attack them or their women or their children. And so on the appointed day, when our enemies had hoped to overpower us and destroy us, annihilate us, the tables were completely turned. My people defended themselves, and no one could stand against them. Why? Because every official in the, in the entire kingdom now answered to Mordecai the Jew, and they chose wisely to side with my people. So against all odds, against every expectation, we triumphed over our enemies. Our fasting was turned to feasting. And every year since then, on my instruction, the people of Israel have remembered and celebrated that great deliverance. How? With a banquet, a banquet, the Feast of Purim. Well, it's an interesting story, isn't it? Don't you love the story of Esther? Some of you don't look as though you've remotely loved it, but I, I think it's a great story. Did you notice that in, in that narrative, I didn't once mention the name God? God didn't once escape my lips. It's the one book in the Bible that never mentions the name of God. And for that very reason, uh, one of the great reformers, Martin Luther, he argued that the book of Esther shouldn't be in the biblical canon. It shouldn't be in the Bible. But I think the absence of God's name from that story is part of its genius. You think about it, the people of Israel, uprooted from their homeland, scattered through the provinces of this kingdom, in judgment on their sin, it often felt to them, it often seemed, appeared to them, that they were on their own, and that God had abandoned them to the consequences of their sin. Judgment and exile. They often felt as if God had left the building. And yet the message of this book, the message of this narrative, is that in spite of their unfaithfulness, God was still with his people. They might not have seen it, but he was there, protecting them, guiding them, fulfilling his promises to them. You think about the extraordinary series of coincidences in the story. Isn't it amazing? How is it that of all the women in the kingdom of Persia, it should be a young Jewish girl, Esther? who wins that beauty pageant and becomes queen? How is it that of all the, the royal officials in the kingdom, it should be Mordecai, Esther's cousin, who uncovers that plot to assassinate the king and saves the king's life? How is it that of all the moments, all the nights, when the king should happen to have difficulty sleeping, it's the very night before Haman plans to launch his genocide? How is it that of all the stories that could have been read to the king that night, it's the story about Mordecai saving his life? 
How is it that of all the moments when, when the king should choose to re-enter the banquet hall, it's the very moment that Haman unwisely throws himself upon the queen? How is it that, that Haman ends up impaled on this huge skewer that he intended for Mordecai, and his intended victim should become his replacement as prime minister, wearing the ring of power and carrying the authority to save his people. I mean, you're all looking very blankly at me as though that's not a remotely extraordinary series of coincidences. And and look, I'll, 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 I'll grant it to you that if you were to view each of those incidents on its own, it might appear to be the result of pure chance, right? Things happen. But consider them all together. View them together, and the element of chance disappears, right? Come on. He may not appear on stage. He may not be named in the script. But the leading character in this story is God. And he determines the outcome of this story, the outcome of these events, by providentially working through everything that happened, not just through miraculous things, but through mundane things, people's decisions, supposedly random events. I mean, he, he achieves his purpose in this story. You think about it. God achieves his purposes in this story through Xerxes' pride and Vashti's defiance and Esther's compromise concealing her identity, and Mordecai's prejudice against Haman. He works through all these things to achieve an outcome, which is the salvation of his people, and ultimately through Jesus, the salvation of the world. Xerxes might think he's on the throne. He might think he is Shah Hanshah, king of kings, and that his word rules the world. But the real king on this throne, the real king ruling the world, that world and this world, is God. He works in all things for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. We heard that. It was read to us this morning. Romans 8. He works in all things. He works in our sin. He even works through our sin, through the mistakes that we've made through the apparently random circumstances of our lives. He works through tragedy. He works through everything, it says. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Where's the needle pointing on the hope gauge of your life today? Are you low on hope? Maybe you've been praying for someone or something for a very long time and it feels as though nothing's been happening. Nothing appears to have changed. Maybe you've been working really hard to try and reset a fractured relationship and it just won't heal. They still want you out of their life. Maybe you've been wrestling with a pattern of thinking or a pattern of of acting and it's destructive for you and for others and you know it. That's why you're fighting it. That's why you're wrestling against it. But but if you're honest this morning, it feels like you're, you're losing the battle. Maybe, like me, you've made a decision 
You've done something that you, you regret. And there are, there are nights when you lie awake in bed looking at the ceiling and you think to yourself, will the consequences of this mistake rule me and my loved ones forever? The fundamental, oh, and, and oh, I should say too, maybe you, like me, think about the church in New Zealand sometimes, a church that is struggling to be faithful in a hostile culture, and you think, is there any hope for the church of New Zealand? Is there any hope for New Zealand? The fundamental message of the book of Esther is that God is sovereign and that God is faithful. God is sovereign and God is faithful. And even when he seems to be most conspicuously absent, he is omnipotently present, working out his purposes for the good of his people and the glory of his name. And he does it through boozy banquets, through sordid beauty pageants, through the decisions of tyrannical dictators, and through bloodstained crosses. And, you know, you think about it. If ever it seemed as if God was absent and hope had disappeared, it was the cross, right? Where the Prince of Glory didn't just risk his, his life, but, but laid down his life. It looked there as though hope had gone for the disciples. And yet we now know that on the cross, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He works through all things for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. So hear the word of God through the story of Esther, the word of God to you this morning. He is with you. He is with you. And you are safe in his care. Lord, we thank you for this uh, story of Esther, this narrative that reminds us that you are faithful and that you are sovereign and that we have hope because you work in all things for our good and for your glory. We thank you even more for the story to which this story points, the story of Jesus the prince who didn't just risk his throne, but gave up his throne. Didn't just risk his life like Esther, but, but gave up his life and rescued us from sin and death. Help us to grasp, Lord, that the fundamental reality that because of his death and resurrection, we always have hope. You're with us. You're for us. And in all things, even a blood-stained cross, even the worst of tragedies, you are working out your good purposes for us and this world. And so we give to you, Lord, those, those anxieties, those fears, those hope-sucking realities of our lives. We trust you with them. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, 
or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.